Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Justice, a podcast exploring all areas of the justice system. With me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I speak to Professor Taj Nathan, a consultant forensic psychiatrist for the NHS who provides independent expert opinion to courts in England and Wales. He's also the author of Dangerous Minds, a forensic psychiatrist's quest to understand violence, a book that asks its readers to reevaluate all that they think they know about the people society deems most dangerous. We discuss the origins of his book and the challenges of working in the field of forensic psychiatry. I'm Taj Nathan. I'm a consultant forensic psychiatrist within the NHS. And alongside my uh, clinical consultant role, I've had uh, academic roles. So I have an um, honorary senior research fellow post at the University of Liverpool. Um, I'm a visiting prof at University of Chester and adjunct prof at uh, Liverpool John Moores. So your book, Dangerous Minds, A Forensic Psychiatrist's Quest to Understand Violence, isn't exactly your average holiday read, but uh, it might be my average holiday read. But what I what I liked about it so much is that it's broken down into the sort of case studies of real human beings, because I think yeah. so much of um, academia and sort of books like this can be a bit bamboozling for your average person. I would agree. And I, I would credit my editor at the publishers, John Murray. So just as a bit of background, so the book came, uh, the book contract came from an essay that I submitted to an essay competition run by the Spectator magazine and the um, John Murray's publishers. And I mean, to my great surprise, I, I won that competition. And with that came a book contract. Um, the, the theme of the essay was origins, the uh, John Murray publishers having published the origin of the species, uh, Charles Darwin's book. So they they use that as the theme for the essay. So I was very interested in the origins of violence. So I thought this would be an opportunity to write an essay about violence. When I then met, so having won the competition and met with uh, Kate um, and her colleague, you know, they were on the one hand very complimentary about the essay, but they were also saying, well, it feels quite academic-y, academic-y, <laughs> right. and it yeah. feels um, like uh, you're either talking in an academic voice or you're talking in a voice to the court. And, um, you know, we can see there's something else behind this and we can see there's potential, but we, we need to find a different voice. So there was that. And, and that was a, a, a learning uh, curve for me to, to find another voice, which was different than my professional voices. But also I had in my mind 
uh, the book structure around types of violence. So violence in relation to psychosis, violence in relation to uh, psychopathy, uh, sexual violence, uh, domestic violence, so different sorts of violence. And it was Kate, as I say, and I must credit her with this, Kate was saying, well, I think this would uh, resonate with a wider readership if it was linked to the individuals. So you draw out the individuals who are the case subjects of the of the chapters. So yeah, um, I, I think it worked, but I must say that it wasn't my uh, idea from the outset. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. I found it incredibly readable because because of that. Um, and it covers things, doesn't it? Like, you know, um, as I say, it's not sort of uplifting necessarily, no, even though it's very no. interesting, but sexual sadism, Munchausen yeah. syndrome by proxy, yeah. murder, yeah. you know, yeah. the sort of the real, what would you say, extreme end of violence? Yeah, I mean, well, it, well, it is. And I, and I, I make that point uh, uh, early on that this is not... Because uh, what, what I don't want to do is to convey or to, to uh, uh, reinforce a stereotype that individuals with mental health problems uh, present a risk to the public. So, so the vast majority of people don't present a risk at all. But by virtue of what I do as a forensic psychiatrist, um, I called upon to see those who have both mental health problems and uh, either have acted violently, and in some cases who've been the victim of violence, um, or who are thought to have an increased likelihood of behaving violently in the future. So it's a it's a really small group of people, really unusual. But yes, it's uh, um, undoubtedly at the, at the high end. I suppose maybe what I failed possibly to appreciate again, and through conversations with Kate, this became clearer to me. I, I, I sort of didn't appreciate how harrowing some of these stories would be, because it, it's the sort of day to day subject matter that I'm concerned with. And so I, to some degree uh, become sort of immune to that side of it. And I, I, I talk in the book about sort of my real world self and I I do find sometimes when I'm reading witness statements in relation to uh, some of these horrific offences, I, I then get jolted out of that sort of intellectual, professional, academic sense into my sort of layperson self and think, gosh, you know, and then I sort of get it. But a lot of the time I'm not in that layperson, ordinary citizen self. And I, I think it would be difficult to be in that frame of mind all the time doing the work that I do because it would be difficult to do it. But yeah, I mean, they're um, uh, um, unpleasant, uh, tra tragic uh, stories. And can you give the listener a bit of an idea of how, so take the 10 people that you have in your book, for example, yeah. men and women. Um, yeah. At what point would you meet them for the first time? And if you explain your sort of journey with yeah. them? Yeah, okay. So, I mean, it, it, it really varies. And, and I mean, maybe just as a bit of background, the sort of role of a um, forensic psychiatrist. So I, I've broadly divided it into two types of roles. One is um, as a doctor, as a psychiatrist who is concerned with the mental health of those who are in the criminal justice system uh, in some form or, or another. And sorry, um, they so, might be in a prison or in a secure hospital. Exactly, right. exactly. So, so they might be in either. And, and sometimes it's an accident to which they're in. You know, I see a lot of people in prison who I think are really struggling there and would be better placed in a in a hospital setting. But resource issues and whatever mean that that hasn't happened. Um, but yeah, so so in that capacity, well, I mean, they may be in prison, they may be in a secure hospital, they may be in the community. So there may be somebody who has been in a prison or a secure hospital and they've either served their time that was dictated by the court or they've progressed very well if they're, uh, for example, a life sentence prisoner or uh, a prisoner on an indeterminate sentence or somebody who's on some sort of hospital order. They progress very well and done the things that are expected of them, demonstrated to the authorities uh, that it is safe to move them through the system. And in the way 
that you'll be familiar with in the prison system. There are sort of uh, levels of uh, security uh, through which prisoners may move, so cut A, B, C, D. Um, within secure hospitals, there is also a hierarchy of security, so the high-secure hospitals, medium-secure, low-secure. So that's one role where I'm acting as a doctor responsible for their care and assessment and treatment. So it may be that in prison um, somebody is concerned, for example, the prison officers on the wing or the nurses who are in the prison are concerned that there is something that is contributing to problematic behaviour um, that may be treatable, that there may be a mental health problem. Just to interject there, isn't there always something responsible for behaviour? Very good point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, There that, may be the... something contributing to this, but there might not be. And I've always found that quite interesting. So I'm like, yeah. look, I'm no doctor. I'm certainly not an expert, but... Surely there's always cause and effect. Exactly. I mean, I think that's a, re- that's a really uh, good point because I think in some ways what we do is we artificially uh, uh, create a group who meet the criteria for our diagnoses and we say that they're more deserving. Um, and, and I think they should be deserving of treatment of help and whatever. But then there's the rest who don't meet the criteria uh, for our diagnostic systems. And again, I touch on this in the book um, because it's a, a strong belief I've had and I've written academically about it is that... There's a sort of arbitrariness about whether someone is considered truly deserving of something extra over and above what would happen in the prison. And that's if they meet the criteria. But I would agree the rest of the individuals who are there are, you know, it's not just an accident that they're there. Um, Yes, they um, have engaged in an act which is uh, a criminal act, has been deemed criminal, and, and it's been deemed that the appropriate sentence is prison. But I would argue that you still would track back, well, how did that come about? There are circumstances in their life uh, that have contributed to that, and that would apply to all of them. So yeah, no, I, I I would totally agree. So then you would be called in as a doctor, maybe to a prison or um, a secure hospital. Yeah. Um, and then you may start treating them like that. And then you said, was there another... Route? Yeah, so so that's the treatment sort of uh, hospital uh, do- do- doctor role, and then there is the uh, court appointed sort of expert role. So that's slightly separately. You're you're there called as um, an independent expert to to undertake assessments and to provide an opinion to the court to allow the court to, if I can put it bluntly, do their thing. So this is when someone's been called for perhaps not sentencing, but been called to court for the hearing. Yeah, so it'd be for the... Well, it could be. I mean, there, there are broadly three stages when we get involved. One is uh, right at the beginning, are they fit? Um, and, and this is the legal term, are they fit to be tried, fit to plead and fit to be okay, tried? Okay, so are um, they fit to basically stand in a courtroom and be Exactly. Questioned? And can they... Do, do they understand what's going on? And, and again, I cover this in one of the cases um, where uh, uh, one of the uh, individuals was so poorly that you, you, he just wasn't fit. I mean, it wouldn't be right. It wouldn't, he wouldn't be able to engage in a conversation. You need to be able to instruct your solicitor. You need to have a sort of, you need to be able to engage in the, in the process in a fair way. If you're massively disadvantaged as a consequence of troubling things in your mind, then the, there are rules and these, there's a long history to those rules. Uh, so that would be at the beginning we could get involved there in the trial itself if there is a so if someone has uh, been involved in a homicide committed a homicide and there are legal rules so it's not the psychiatrist coming along and saying uh, we think there's a psychiatric defense it's the law says well if they were um, significantly mentally ill at the time they committed the offense then they may be eligible for a defense it doesn't mean if they're successful in that defense that they're acquitted. It doesn't mean that they get off, but it means that they may get a lesser sentence. So instead of murder, they may be convicted of, sorry, a lesser conviction. 
instead of murder, they may be convicted of manslaughter. So, so at that stage in the trial, um, and then we do get involved at sentencing. So very occasionally, if the court wants an opinion about what's called dangerousness, a term that I don't particularly like, but they want to know um, what are the risks of the person reoffending, and it may influence what sentence they give. Similarly, if somebody is convicted of an offence that is punishable by imprisonment, an alternative, if they have a mental illness, if they meet the criteria in the way that I said before, they could be sentenced to hospital. But to do that, they need psychiatric uh, recommendations. So the court would need to be presented with recommendations. So in the court, so there's a doctor role, the court role, and in the court, there's those three stages, fitness to plead, uh, in the trial itself and then at sentencing. Okay. And then you'd have a jury, wouldn't you? So, um, yeah. well, sort of often, um, if it's in a Crown Court. Um, yeah. And so the role of the expert witness, as I understand it, is someone who can come in and kind of try and provide independent information to the jury so that they can actually stand a chance of understanding what's going on because on the one hand you've got medical speak you've got court speak you've got criminal justice speak and you might be someone who's just never been involved in this world exactly. ever before and it's yeah. completely bamboozling isn't it but um could you talk a little bit about the importance of your role of being independent because i know that that's uh, a tricky area it is really tricky because uh, so we are independent we have to be independent we shouldn't be influenced by uh, uh, the defense or the prosecution um uh, so in obviously in uh, in in england and where well in in the uk our, our criminal courts are adversarial and you know that's a separate debate about whether they should be adversarial or inquisitorial but they are adversarial which means that the two sides argue and they present their argument to the court and then um as you say in a crown court the jury basically decide which is the most persuasive argument. So is it the argument that this person was involved in the offence that the prosecution is advancing, or is it that this person wasn't, or if they were, that there were some mitigating circumstances which the defence might present. But it's not presented as to the jury in a way, um, well, let's try and get to the truth. It's presented as believe our arguments, prosecution believe our argument, defence. So as an independent expert, you need to remain mindful that you can't get caught up in that Though on either side of the argument, even though you are instructed usually by the defence or the prosecution. Hmm. So, so doesn't um, that then make you not very independent? Well, it uh, has the potential to make you not independent, but then you need to be mindful. So the, the way, a, a, a sort of basic way of dealing with it is, so if I'm instructed by the defence, so if the defence the defense solicitors believe there may be a case for a defence of diminished responsibility for someone who was... Uh, being charged with murder. So even though they instruct me, they send me a letter, they do this, they send me all the papers, that I have conversations with them, I need to make sure that when I'm putting the report together, it will be exactly the same as if the prosecution instructed me. So I need to remain, and similarly, if the prosecution instruct me, which they may do if the defence have a psychiatric report already, and they want to contest that, well, I may come up with a report that doesn't help the prosecution. So it's very occasionally, well, not, not very occasionally, but occasionally, I may produce a report for the defence. The defence find it unhelpful, but they submit it to the court and the prosecution then call me as an expert, which I, I hope is an indication of, um, uh, of my independence. So we need to not be hired guns. But there is, it, it is difficult because you, when you get called to court, again, you sit behind whichever team is calling you, you have conversations with them, you, get, you can, if you're not vigilant, you can get caught up in that adversarial process. You know, I'm here yeah. to defend to, to support the defense but 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 we're not and then the other point which you mentioned was presenting the evidence in a way that is understandable to the jury because this is really technical stuff yeah. and I think that's so over and above being 
a sort of expert in this area, um, as a forensic psychiatrist in a court, you need to also be able to present this information in a way that's understandable to a layperson who doesn't have any uh, background. And I, I think I've learned over the years, I think uh, early on in my career, I would present very technical, uh, pre present things in very technical ways. The court would say, look, Dr. Nathan, you, you're going to have to simplify this because we're struggling to understand it. How do you expect the jury to understand it? But that's a technique, and, and um, uh, but it's important to, to ensure that it's presented in a way that's understandable uh, to non-specialists. Okay. And then sort of hopping out of the court now and sort yeah. of back to um, the people that you wrote about, um, would you say, and I can imagine that it is true that most of them have suffered horrific trauma in their early childhoods that lead them to commit such what I would call and what most people would call sort of strange, unbelievable acts yeah. of aggression. Yeah. Is it true yeah. to say that? I mean, maybe I not it, always, the, but... Well, no, that's right. Yeah, I'd say not always, but the vast majority of cases. So, um, you know, a, a lot of, again, the, the sort of... Um, uh, one of the things as a forensic psychiatrist that one needs to be prepared to do is to hear and to listen to and to understand um, uh, difficult, tragic stories of these people's lives. And a lot of what we do is is taking those accounts of those early lives to make sense of how they've come to where they are now. Very occasionally, very occasionally, there isn't that history, past history of, of trauma, of adversity and whatever. But in the vast majority of cases, and the ones where it isn't, it's really unusual. And there's something that I think is structurally going on within the brain in those cases but they're they're so unusual that that i that and that they're often well i think in the media there's not i mean and, and i i say there's not enough attention given to how these uh what what is the and what i call the causal narrative so what is the the real explanation the detailed explanation of how this person has come to this point in their life um, when they may do something like uh, like they they did, and in the media, a media representation of a trial is is simplistic, one dimensional. It's often presenting the person, and again, what I, I use the term in the in the book, the sort of evil, evil monster narrative, and it's a it's a it's a persuasive narrative to the public, and I think it's a but it causes an idea. It just doesn't lead to understanding. It doesn't take you anywhere. No, um, but I think sort of you know having written my uh, master's dissertation on the role of media in reporting, but that was about sort of female victims of crime you know what i learned was actually they just want people to read their article yes. they're not concerned yeah. about you know getting the general public to understand any sort of violence in any way are they yes well i think i mean and there's a broad i, I totally agree and there's a, certain there's sections a broader... of the media i might probably have to add <laughs> yeah well that's right i think that, that um but even um those that are more inclined to to um, uh, explore some of the detail. I think because they get snippets from the court case, and the way, and again, the way the adversarial system presents it, it's it's only sections of the only things that are relevant to a defence or to uh, the prosecution's case appears. So, I in cases that I've been involved in, and I have the whole history, and I think well, that's an interesting narrative that I'm seeing in the media, even if it's a an attempt to understand, it is a, a simplistic uh, attempt. I suppose the other issue is uh, which relates to this I think about the desire for so along with that evil monster narrative of uh, these individuals is this desire for punishment but I I think actually um, imprisonment really when we look at the evidence in a large number of cases not all so there are some cases where imprisonment's necessary because there is such a serious risk of uh, offending again but but most um, 
uh, imprisonment doesn't reduce the risk of offending. Imprisonment is actually to satisfy a desire in the spectators because they feel this person is being punished. In, um, the evidence is that it doesn't necessarily reduce reoffending, and if prison conditions are, are poor, then it may increase the likelihood of uh, future offending. So it incapacitates the person for a period of time, but it incapacitates them in a way that often undermines their ability to function in the community, uh, that distances their relationships, breaks relationships with the people that they may have had uh, relationships they may have had with people in the community and can undermine their mental health, which may have already been destabilised. So it, there are these narratives in the in the media. Um, and I, I'm not, it's not about just being critical of the media because I think it's a narrative that people find entertaining. So it's the media satisfying, our, if I can put it as our sort of baser needs. But I, but I think we should try and provide an alternative narrative, which is based on understanding, which actually would lead to reduced offending. If we understand and we do something about uh, uh, to help the person on the basis of an understanding, then in the long term that would uh, reduce offending in a way that just imprisoning somebody in pretty harsh conditions is, is not going to do. Exactly. It's like building services around an emotional response, isn't it? Yes. To yeah. something. And if our emotional response, which understandably is shock, horror, and our, we would then want to punish the person who's committed harm... Yes. That's a fair enough reaction. But then actually, if your job is to provide services and do what works, well, often yes. it's the opposite thing you have to do. Yeah. As unpalatable as that might be, yes. we need to do what's right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I mean, I think you put it, that, that I'm, I'm going to use that term, if you don't mind, a sort of uh, a, 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 a structural response to an emotional reaction. I mean, that's that's exactly what it is. And it's the emotional reaction in the spectators. So it's dealing with the emotions of the spectators in a way that... Um, uh, actually doesn't help society, doesn't help the spectators because it doesn't reduce the risk. No, of, because of I don't sit here and I'm sure you don't sit there going, gosh, I really like having violent people marching around committing awful yeah. acts. Like yeah. we are all the same in the sense that none of us want lots of violent people around yes. causing violent acts. It's just yes. there's two ways to deal with it. You can deal with it in a way that's an emotional response that makes them worse or you can deal with yes. it um, sensibly based yes. on the evidence, yeah. as unpalatable as that might be, yes. and get a better response. Absolutely. I mean, I think this sort of uh, there's that that um, characterization of dealing with it as an, uh, in an emotional sort of impulsive, reactive way versus a considered, rational, thought through, evidence based way that applies to so much of what we do wrong in society. But it, it, I think it's it's uh, sort of starkly illustrated by uh, our approach. Which I mean, you in some ways, thankfully, it's not to the same extent as in the States, um, but there are other countries, so for example, Norway and to some degree in Holland, where things um, you know, just, I mean, um, uh, having visited the forensic services in Holland a few years ago, um, I mean, they were saying, although their approach is very much uh, um, relational and trying, so they were managing in their secure hospitals, they were managing offenders with the same profile, um, uh, offenders with the same profile as their offenders would be in high secure services, high secure mental health hospitals here, were in a much less, uh, much lower level of security with the same outcomes because they were uh, um, invested so much in the relationship between the people around them and the and the residents in these units. And I, I don't want to be too critical of our services because because I think we're somewhere in the middle. I think we there are attempts uh, to to do that. Um, yeah, I think, would you agree? I mean, obviously, I, I know prisons more than I know the sort of forensic um, sort of settings and the hospitals. Yes. But, you know, it also seems that those staff who understand that um, yes. and understand the need for connection and relationships in an appropriate manner, of course, in a professional way, in a work setting, 
um, the system sort of almost can prevent them from maybe going down that pathway as well, yeah. which yes. can sort of sometimes cause trouble, I think, with staff, can't it? Yeah, they can't sort quite of... do their job in the way that they know they could do it better. Exactly. So I think there was the um, benchmarking exercise. So the reduction in the uh, so a few years ago, the reduction in the investment in uh, prison staff resources. So they had to reduce the number of prison uh, staff. Now I don't know what the evidence, uh, the, the uh, uh, studies, uh, empirical evidence for this, but certainly my experience was that prisons felt prisons that I would go into felt more unsettled and more risky um, and. Uh, and I don't think that's just about the number of staff who are around to uh, prevent uh, what's going on. It's just not just about monitoring. I, I think, in my experience, there are some very good prison staff who, I think, I mean, partly it may be training, but I think it's the nature of their personality that they sort of seem to have an intuitive response that works um, uh, in the moment of de-escalating a situation, being respectful, uh, because I, I think the risk is of two, two very uh, a, a complete disconnect between the prisoners and the prison officers. And if that happens, then uh, you've got rivalry and um, there's no opportunity to... And, and disrespect both ways. So why would a, a prisoner who... Uh, an individual who's in prison, whose experience even before they came to prison of authority is probably not a very good experience, whether that's in the family home or in, in other environments, uh, care homes or whatever, um, then go into a prison and they see more manifestations of this sort of unpleasant figures of authority. And if they see that, well, it's certainly not going to reduce the chances of them doing what they've done before. But if they start to see a, a different way of relating and a different style of authority figures, um, then then I, th I think that could have a, a, a real positive effect on their life course. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about sort of uh, diagnostic labels and yes. um, the importance of them, but also maybe the challenge of them and, and what you feel about them. And, yeah. and particularly when it comes to the term that's banded around a lot, sort of personality disorder and borderline yes. personality disorder. Yeah because it's always a sort of hot topic in the prisons. And I yeah. feel sort of somehow almost became sort of political when sort of money yeah. was attached to yep. the di the diagnosis of it, yep. which meant that yes. loads of people then got labelled it. <laughs> yes, well, I do. Uh, so yes, yeah. so um, the, the it, there's an issue with diagnosis, I think, in mental health anyway. So we, I say we, uh, it, there's a sort of pretense that the, a diagnostic term in mental health, such as borderline personality disorder, or even a mental illness such as schizophrenia, that they have the sort of same status or equivalence to a physical health diagnosis, say asthma or coronary artery disease. And, and they just don't because uh, they are terms that describe a group of features, a group of um, symptoms or ways of behaving. That That's really all they do. There's no diagnostic test because we, we don't know what's underneath them. And there probably isn't a single thing underneath them, that it's probably a you know combination of all those things we've spoken about that may uh, increase the risk of offending can also increase the risk of mental health problems so childhood adversity um, isolation um, uh, poverty all those sorts of things can increase the risk of mental health problems and then we sort of oversimplify it we apply this diagnostic label I think there is some utility to diagnoses because it can help us say okay well we know people who have these sorts of problems may benefit from this sort of treatment so that there may be some benefit but we shouldn't overstate the uh, validity of diagnoses because I think there's a problem then coming to this really important issue that you mentioned of personality disorder so and I again would agree when I was fairly junior forensic consultant uh, the uh, 
document personality disorder no longer a diagnosis of exclusion was um, published uh, 2005 six um, and a lot of investment uh, accompanied that and it was very well intentioned and it was saying personality disorder uh, pa patients who meet the criteria for personality disorder have been excluded are excluded on the base of their personality disorder from mental health services so we're going to invest a lot of money into this including in the forensic services so there was a initiative called the uh, DSPD dangerous severe personality disorder services huge amount of investment in prisons and, and high skill hospitals but what it meant was there was a uh, for example a group of prisoners who were uh, diagnosed with personality disorder um, so that they could be transferred to hospital just before their release uh, due date uh, that they do before they were due to be released from prison um so th i mean th you know th that was misuse of diagnoses that was diagnoses for preventative detention because people were you know they'd served their sentence and right at the last minute transferred to hospital well then you're in a different system you, you you're then uh, the sentence becomes immaterial it's you're on a, a mental health act uh, order which is then up to the hospital the other issue with diagnoses is so for example borderline personality disorder is well, any diagnosis, uh, but illustrated by borderline personality disorder, is that it doesn't lead to understanding. So often what happens is, well, that's just borderline personality disorder. Well, and, um, and so... from what I saw, everyone then also, you know, it's like, oh, my God, they've got a personality disorder. That means they're untreatable. Yes. Well, because that's, that and... sort of became a thing, didn't it? And again, I'm on yep. sketchy ground. I'm not a doctor, but it's just sort of the things I've picked up on over the years and having worked around prisoners with these labels. And yeah. having worked closely with some people with personality disorders who I wasn't scared of, they weren't scared of oh. me. And actually they seemed, you know, not that I spent a huge amount of time with them, of course, but yeah. they were people who were able to operate and are able to operate exactly. in the community. Uh, I mean, that's it. The label starts to develop other meanings. So the meaning may be um, need to be fearful or uh, uh, untreatable or... Um, so it, it and it's just a sort of false categorization because um, the way, so for example, in uh, borderline personality disorder, um, and I'm using that term even though I question whether it is a thing, but there are people who meet the criteria for it. Um, it's much better to say, well, um, so if, so uh, self-harm is seen to be a feature of borderline personality disorder. So rather than saying uh, their self-harm is due to their borderline personality disorder, that doesn't take you anywhere really. You say, well, um, <clears throat> let's listen to that person and listen to their account of why they self-harm. And when we do that. I mean, there are different accounts, but one account, um, you know, that I, I hear not infrequently in prisons is, you know, I learnt to, again, early trauma. Um, I would, um, I, I didn't do, you know, they're, they're describing what happened to them as a child. I didn't do this on purpose, but it just happened. What happened is my mind started to separate from my body and that allowed me to uh, survive this trauma. So mm. it was an, ad an adaptation. To and they that, call that um, sort of dissociation, right? Disso exactly, that's, that's dissociation. So a dissociation of um, the mind from the body almost. Um, so it's an adaptation. That, yeah, that's, and a protective uh, and feature. Exactly. They, they can then survive that because they, uh, when those traumatic things are happening to them or traumatic things are happening around them, yeah, that, that they just disconnect their emotions. The problem is if those traumatic things happen a lot, they then lose control of their dissociation. So it starts to occur randomly. And one way that people say that they can reconnect their body with their mind is by cutting themselves because they see that it's a manifestation of the pain in a physical act, um, uh, a manifestation of the emotional pain 
in a physical act where there may be physical pain, although sometimes they say I don't feel anything when I do it. It's only when I've done it, I feel my mind coming back into my my body because the, I mean, if we imagine, if we just started dissociating randomly, it would be a really unpleasant, you'd feel out of control. You think, well, what's going on? Um, so whereas it was an adaptation, a, a, a survival mechanism early on in life, if that trauma is repeated, then it becomes just, it starts happening. That's really unpleasant. Well, how do they uh, regain control of their mind? Self-harm is one way. There are lots of other processes, but what we should be doing is listening to the person to say, you know, if you're able to talk about what's happening in the run-up to when you self-harm, then um, we then get an account of what's going on, which is much more useful than it's borderline personality disorder, because they'll all get that yeah. diagnosed. It doesn't take and to anywhere. actually sort of say how terrible that thing happened to you, how amazing that our bodies do actually put something in place to protect you. However, yes. clearly taking a knife to your wrists is not a good solution. What yeah. could we put in place exactly. to try and wean you off doing that to something yeah. maybe more positive? Well, I think, yeah, as you illustrated there, the first is it provides an explanation that has, has meaning to the person because it's it's turning their words into something that is understandable because they've told you that, but it's saying this happens. So that some people say, gosh, I didn't realise that other people got that, So and, and now I get it. But also, as you say, it leads to then potential solutions to say, okay, well, what when you have that dissociation, let's think about other ways that you can bring your mind back to your body. And that may be some people use elastic bands on their hands. It may be mindfulness. It may be that they spot it coming earlier on. Now they know that is a risk factor. They spot it coming. What can they do? Remove themselves from a high stress situation. So it's all more, I mean, I'm really interested in, um, and it, it sounds odd that I even have to say this because you would have thought this would be standard, but listening in depth to the words of the people uh, that we see. So in, in in the detail of the words, you start to hear truly what is the process, the psychological process that leads to the behaviour. Whereas what medically we're at risk of doing is we uh, get an account, there's self-harm, there's a, a, what we call emotional dysregulation, they can't control their emotions, uh, they're not clear about their identity, we'll diagnose them with borderline and that's it, you know, and then, but that, as I say, is a sort of um, explanatory dead end it just sort of doesn't take you any further in terms of explanation yeah because I often think you know understanding the emotion behind an action when it comes to violence is so important so if you have someone very violent well they might be very angry and why might they be very angry well sometimes you find out that if they've been sexually abused all their lives maybe by their father or or someone else well that response to what happened to them is entirely understandable. Yes. And it's a correct response. Yeah. You know, of course you'd be angry and you'd so so it's kind of yeah, being able to sort of piece those bits together for that individual to actually yeah. realize not everything is maladaptive. No. no. You know, well, actually that's why a lot it's of it is sort of correct. So an awful thing happened to you, but actually yes. let's piece your life together now. And of course yes. it's not acceptable to then go around punching people or doing worse things. Yes. However, there is there is sort of light at the end of the tunnel. Is that well, me being that, incredibly naive? No, I don't think it is. And you mentioned the other uh, point that uh, you mentioned emotion, emotional response to the way we deal with people who commit offences, but also, you know, what you've highlighted there is uh, paying attention to the emotions of the individual. So I think one of the things that uh, we have tended to do is we've ignored emotions and feelings um, in favour of thoughts and cognitions. So we've been saying, well, what is it that you're thinking about? What is it you believe? What is... Those are important. They're clearly important. But um, for us to 
function well and to manage stress uh, without going into an emotional crisis, we need to pay attention both to our emotional response and to the thoughts we have. And I don't think we've paid enough attention to emotions um, generally. And and I think particularly in psychiatry, um, it's probably something that has been neglected. Has Have there been any people that you've worked with where sort of, you know, because you will also have an emotional response yeah. to these people. And I imagine you see them at the time and you come in at the end, which is, I know what they've done, therefore yes. I have to work with that. And I guess it takes a, a bigger person to sort of care about what went before. How do you manage your own uh emotions and feelings and reactions to things you talked a little bit about your real world self and and i i understand that because sometimes i can watch something on television and be in tears within about 30 seconds and other times at work i'm listening to the most awful things happening but i'm sort of there's a professional block almost yeah yeah no exactly yeah so um i mean the, the the emotional Potential emotional problems in in our work is is uh, one is hearing about these dreadful things that somebody has done and then being faced with that person. I think I deal with that um, by uh, tending to take a slightly sort of intellectual interest in it. So I intellectualize it, and there's a risk of um, it, uh, one shouldn't do that too much because then you start to miss those important emotional things. But I think that's the way I deal with it. Is I'm constantly thinking, well, I'm interested in understanding what are the explanations. So if I'm immersed in that, I uh, it allows me uh, to not pay as much attention to the horror, for example, of it. But I think you do have to bring yourself back to that and remind yourself of that. And I sometimes am brought back to that, particularly, as I say, when I read witness statements. So I'm getting an account of what has happened to somebody and then, you know, it'll um, it then hits home. The other emotional uh, thing that I think we need to pay attention to is our emotions just during the interaction. So, um uh, a lot of the people I see have um, uh, their ways of dealing with situations where they're feeling under threat is, um, uh, you know, to to put up defences. And sometimes those defences are just they sort of shut down. I don't want to talk to you. Sometimes they're more hostile defences, you know, keep away from me. And so so it's to, um, what the uh, again, my ordinary human self uh, in those situations might think, oh, this is not very nice. Why are you being so rude to me? Um, but I, you have to pay attention. So you pay attention to, um, OK, I'm getting a feeling. I, I, I talk in um, one of the chapters about a narcissistic standoff. So I recall a, uh, a, uh, an individual I was seeing who had committed uh, homicide, um, who was had uh, narcissistic tendencies um, and was trying to... Uh, sort of demean my expertise because that's how he managed the situations. Now, one response is that I could get into a narcissistic standoff. I could start to emphasise, oh, I'm a really important person. And I've got yeah, this. you all but, start beating that, your chests. Well, <laughs> exactly. We could both be doing that. That's not going to get anywhere. I'm not going to... So, so I need to sort of pay attention to it. I need to spot it. That's happening. And maybe this is a feature of his personality, how he relates to people that may be relevant to the difficulties he's had in his life and maybe a consequence of the difficulties he's had in his life and maybe relevant to the offence. So there's the emotions around the horror of the stories and then there's the emotional responses in the moment with the person that I need to make sure um, that I'm not reacting immediately. Yeah, but equally, and you... I guess you're sort of being emotionally nimble or or just being so aware of how you might be being triggered and how you might have to avoid that and do something else exactly. that might seem yeah. like 
the thing you don't want to do, but you have exactly. to Exactly. Yeah, I think, and in doing that, you become more aware of your own biases. So we all have biases. So, the, you know, that... The, um, uh, that have developed in our lives. We may tend to think in a certain way, tend to feel in a certain way. And so, um, um, you know, I may be more, may have been more vulnerable to that narcissistic challenge. And and I think, again, in the past, I might, without recognising it, have felt the need. I felt, I'm not doing it at a conscious level, but I can sort of sense my uh, identity as having some authority and knowledge in this situation is being undermined. I need to emphasise it because I'm feeling unsettled. Now, I don't, I just, it's just an interesting thing. I'm watching out for that sort of uh, stuff. And I always ask people this question because so much of, I think, working with people, particularly in extreme environments like courts, probation, prisons, forensic psychiatry, you yeah. do need a level. Well, it certainly helps a lot if you have a level of self-awareness um, yes. and emotional intelligence. But yes. as far as I'm aware, that's not taught anywhere no. In a, in no. almost any profession, I don't think. And it's no, just think... you're either lucky that maybe yeah. you had parents who sort of talked to you about emotional intelligence and what it yeah. is, what your emotions are, what it leads to, or yeah. you sort of end up reading books about it. I was lucky I sort of had a bit of both. And mm. my mother always had lots of books around about sort of emotions and behaviours. And I was fascinated by all of that, which is probably why I've ended up in the world that I'm in to a certain extent, because yes. I'm fascinated by humans. But so you, yes. as a forensic psychiatrist and ending up in court as ex, an expert witness, you haven't had yes. any training on emotional intelligence or no, behaviour. No, and I think it's you're amazing. right. I think we should, yeah. And um, I think the, the interest, the, the, the sort of extension of that is um, when, so if I see someone interacting in a way that would be problematic with, for example, a, a prisoner or resident of a secure patient in a secure hospital. Um, what I used to think was, uh, you're, um, th there's a problem with, you know, with a member of staff, there's a problem with you and, and you know, you're just not a very nice person. Now I realise that they're being put in difficult situations without having had that training. So it's sort of, it's not, um, th there's a risk of um, sort of, uh, uh, immediately coming to judgments about the people who work in these places who are not doing, and I think that again, in the same way, we we should seek understanding for the residents, um, for the offenders in the system. We should also try and seek understanding uh, for those people who are not very well equipped to deal with them, even though they're in that profession, because no one's. There's never been an overt, explicit expectation that you do that sort of thing. But I think it's it's essential. I mean, the, um, you know, the, it'd be interesting to think about sort of recruitment on the basis of well, what you know is that that being part of the recruitment process or um uh that being part of the training you know you might say well, okay well, we're not going to rule out people who seem to lack emotional intelligence uh, or seem to have problems in that area but you need to be willing to engage in some sort of uh training around those sorts well exactly of and even the basic stuff i mean you know you don't have to have a sort of master's level degree or PhD in this stuff, do you? It's just no. a basic understanding of, you know, there's something called emotions. Here are yes. the range of them. These are the sorts of behaviours that might come from the emotion. I remember talking to one man in prison and he had committed a violent offence and he was going through the restorative justice process. And when he started off, he said, I'd walk into this room and people would say, how do you feel? Uh, is it a smiley face or is it a sad face? And he was like, I've only ever known a sad face. Like, yes. I don't know this thing that you call fun. I don't know yeah. this thing that you call happiness. Yeah. You know, so I can't tell you how emotionally I'm feeling because I have one gear. I'm sad. And I, yeah. you know, and it was so interesting, again, putting yeah. our 
our views from the outside onto these people. Come exactly. on, talk about your emotions. I have no yeah. idea. Well, that's that the sort of emotional range issue, which it sounds like um, that uh, uh, gentleman you're talking about uh, has. And, and um, that, that we, um, if we go along and expect, well, they have the same sort of... Uh, um, uh, capacity emotionally and cognitively that we do, then then we're gonna there's gonna be a problem. And um, to develop an emotional range of emotions, you you um, and for those to include negative emotions and positive emotions, you, you've got to have had a, a sort of um, you know reasonably um, you know it doesn't need to be a childhood free of any trauma, but but you know you, you need a secure base where there's some emotional certainty. You know that's where you go to, um, and there needs to be some positive experience. And if it's um, again, if it's negative and there isn't a secure base where which will be soothing when things are bad, then you're left with emotions and you ha- you have great difficulty controlling them and understanding them. So as you say, we then say, oh, well, are you feeling this? And this is, again, one of the problems with what psychiatrists and psychologists expect of patients, the people that we see, is we expect them to understand this language um, that is not, you know, it's not necessarily something that makes any sense to them. And sometimes what they do is they don't want to, sh- you know, sounds like uh, a gentleman you were speaking about, have the sort of presence of mind to say, I don't, I don't get it. Some people will go along with it because they don't want to show that they don't get it. And then, then it's felt when it doesn't um, fit with how they're behaving. Oh, well, you know, they're being deceptive. And it feeds into that and whole narrative. Manipulative, you know, the, the, and they're just a manip- troublemaker. Well, that, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of how, um, emotional responses, I think um, as well as that point you raise about recognizing that people may not have the same emotional sort of range and experience that we have, uh, respect and validation, I think, are, are two key things that we need to pay real attention to. So be respectful. I mean, why not be respectful? Um, even when we're feeling challenged, even when there is a difficult situation, uh, uh, to be respectful. Um, and I've seen many incidents when that has really worked to de-escalate problems. Validation. Uh, so the importance of that is a lot of people who've had negative experiences in childhood, those experiences are invalidating. It's often saying, you, um, we don't care about your emotions. Your emotions don't matter. They're, they're, uh, how you're feeling doesn't matter. Um, uh, um, you know, and they have to deal with it in whatever way, dissociation or whatever way they deal with it. So what we should aim not to do is invalidate how they're feeling. And it's difficult. So someone might say to me, you know, I feel really annoyed that you won't prescribe this medication. So I need, and I may genuinely believe that that medication is not appropriate and it's not, um, relying on medication is not going to be the answer. But I shouldn't convey that in a way where I dismiss the problem. And that's what often happens is in saying, I don't think this is the right, uh, or I don't agree that you move category prison, I give you medication, whatever it is, how we convey that without invalidating the frustration, the emotion is, is, you know, something we need to think more about. Um, And a lot of what we do in the system is quite invalidating for these people who've had extreme invalidation during their early years. And if um, anyone was listening, maybe sort of younger, wanting to embark upon a career in forensic psychiatry, could you just quickly give a a sort of an indication of how someone might become a forensic psychiatrist? Yeah, yeah. okay. So so there's forensic psychiatry and forensic psychology. So forensic psychiatry... um, uh, you, you have to do medicine. So you do medicine uh, in the uh, you know along with everyone else doing medicine, and then uh, as with everyone else, once they've completed their medical training, they then start to specialise. So in forensic psychiatry, you specialise in 
first in psychiatry, so you become a psychiatrist. Um, so you're a, a medic who has specialist experience in psychiatry, um, and then you can then subspecialize uh, after a period of what we call general psychiatry, you can then subspecialise in forensic psychiatry. My God, so you're about 40 by the time you finish <laughs> studying. It does feel <laughs> That's what my yeah. maths did in my head. Yeah, yeah. And there's, all, there's exams along the way, so you've got your, your sort of basic um, professional exams. And then if you want to do uh, academic work in the way that I've done, you might do other uh, academic qualifications, so diplomas, masters, uh, doctoral theses. Um, forensic psychology, there are lots of different... So, And, and I raise forensic psychology because you can have... Uh, a lot of the same work experience um, without necessarily going through the psychiatry pathway through medicine. Uh, so you don't have to psychology. do your seven years at university, crucially. You don't have to do your seven years. <laughs> yeah, so you, do, you, you would do a, um, a psychology degree or another social science degree, and then you would likely do a master's of some sort, again, within psychology. And then you can either um, go into clinical psychology, so you do a doctorate in clinical psychology, and I think that's three years. Um, and it's very competitive, very well, uh, very sought after. Or you can go into forensic psychology, which I think is a chartered route, where you um, get employed within, for example, uh, the, uh, the prison system, and you have to... Uh, um, uh, develop a portfolio over a period of time until it's basically sort of signed off you've got the necessary experience so forensic psychologists you know are working within prisons delivering uh, offense um, programs and, and other intervention programs within the prison sometimes going to court in the way that i do so that will be the other route not the non-medical route to to this sort of work okay and do you enjoy your job I do. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I mean, I, I um, so uh, again, I set out in the book, I never, um, so from an early age, I want, well, I wanted to be David Attenborough when I was really young. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so right. I, he was on, te- he was on telly doing life on earth and I loved biology and I thought that's what I want to do. And then realism hit in and I thought, okay, medicine uh, from an early age. And, but I never wanted, to, my father is a retired psychiatrist um, and I ne- I used to think psychiatry is not real medicine, you know, it's, uh, and I wanted to be a surgeon. I played a lot of rugby, ended up in the uh, local uh, DGH hospital with rugby injuries. So I want to be the orthopaedic surgeon. Um, well, firstly, I'm rubbish with my hands. I've got no de- dexterity, so I'd be a rubbish surgeon. It, uh, secondly, and more importantly, um, I was resisting something that actually suited the way that I think it, psychiatry really suits the way that I think. And and you get into um, that, that, in the way that we've spoken about, the sort of detailed understanding that it's it's not simple it's complex it's thinking about people their stories trying to understand them trying to engage them so i all those sort of things i think suit me um and yeah i i mean i really enjoy uh, what what i do well thank you so much um for the book i really really enjoyed it but i am fascinated by violence and what drives people to sort of do yeah. things i guess so um, I would highly recommend it and we'll make sure that um, the details are put in the footnotes of the podcast. But okay, um, for now, until our next conversation, which hopefully yes. will be soon. Thank you so, so much. That's my pleasure. Thanks very much to you too. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.